Hello, welcome to this session, Bossy Queen Victoria. I'm Bossy Sarah MacDonald, Bossy Julia Bev. And uh, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Um, please put your phones on silent. You can tweet away uh, at the hashtag allaboutwomen. But we're going to discuss today why Queen Victoria is such an important figure in history and why she's so important to revisit today. What we can learn from this tiny queen who had such a massive empire. She was the Empress of India as well as the Queen of Great Britain. 64 years on the throne, nine children, ten prime ministers, and as Julia says in this wonderful book, she endured. So Julia's book is called Victoria the Queen, an intimate biography of the woman who changed the world. And it's a really incredibly readable and thoroughly modern rollicking tale. You can't believe you've read so much when you finish it because it's so engaging and beautifully written and researched. So Julia is a journalist, a broadcaster, a columnist and political commentator. She's the host of the drama on ABC TV, columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and the New York Times. But before all that, she was a student of history. She has a PhD in history. So please welcome Dr. Julia Betts. <laughs> Dr. Julia, <laughs> why did you set out to do um, this new biography of the Queen? It's been called A Political and Feminist Guide to Victoria. Is that what you set out to do? I set out to look at Victoria and to look at women in power. I'm always interested by people who instantly say it's a feminist enterprise to look at a woman who's powerful. I actually feel like people who examine women who've been leaders without taking on some of the you know, dominant strands of, of feminist history or feminist thinking, which is um, stripping them of myths and stripping them of stereotypes. I think they're the ones that should be branded non-feminist histories instead of the proper thinking. You know, um, modern, contemporary look at a woman who was the world's most powerful working mother who for half of her life was a single mother, not in the economic stereotype that we normally think of it, but as a woman who was managing nine children in many countries in Europe, including her own and 400 million people on her own, as a woman who embraced power when other women had none. And when I looked at it, and I started looking at it when um, I was in the States and I was reporting on Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton, and we co I was constantly arguing with my editorial team about the way we thought about women with authority and how warped our understanding was and how quickly we went to cliches as though it's some kind of awkward match, um, women and power, like oil and water, that it's surprising or it's secondary or they just carry it heavily or they're somehow interlopers in a man's world. Then you realise that's inf infected the way that we've looked at, looked at um, other women throughout history. So when I went uh, to this really wonderful old, old library and spent several months reading all the biographies of Victoria, I realised that she had been buried under a whole bunch of myths. Firstly, her children never really featured. She'd kind of like be in the middle of a war and then one would pop out, then she'd have another, you know, <laughs> conflict, another one would pop out. But, you know, it, it, it wasn't really explored, the fact that she had postnatal depression. She had a very complicated um, relationship to her body to pregnancy, to what it did to her, um, 
to her repulsion for breastfeeding and her annoyance at the fact that it affected her sex life so much. Um, I, th I thought that her children were put to the side and she was very much cliched as a bad mother, as a mean mother, because she sometimes said, I, want it, I prefer to spend time with my husband, they're driving me crazy, or she criticised their... No mothers ever say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, exactly. Or criticised, you know, their severe hairstyles. She was kind of a helicopter parent before trains were properly running, you know, basically. Um, so I wanted to interrogate that, and I really wanted to interrogate her relationship with power. A lot of biographies kind of trail off when Albert dies. And then she becomes what we know as this kind of stout, doer, grieving widow who was very invested in painting herself as just that. She contributed to that myth. She wanted to be the woman who was trotting around the highlands with a kilted Scotsman um, and not someone who was very heavily involved in the machinations of power. So that's really what it was. It was someone who I thought was hiding in plain sight yeah. and I wanted to kind of dig her out from the mountain of myths. Yeah, and also how she was quite a, you know, sexual... She loved, obviously, you know, loved sex, which Julia talks about in the book about um, the night after the wedding night and stuff. It's quite a romantic... Very romantic. And actually, it. one yeah. thing I was delighted to discover, which no-one else had actually seen, was in the... Osborne House, I don't know if any of you have ever been there, it's on the Isle of Wight, it's where she died, it's completely snap frozen as it was at the moment she died and there is this painting there and it was only my second time there um, that I was staring at it for a while and one of the guides said to me, you might want to look closely at that. that, that painter puts tricks in his paintings and that's the first one that Victoria bought for Albert and I um, looked closely at it and it's this beautiful idyllic afternoon um, uh, scene and it's got three women and it's an afternoon picnic and one of them's lying back on the, on the other two with this look of bliss on her face and they're holding a parasol to shade her face. Now, if you look closely and closely and closely, suddenly you'll notice there's an extra pair of shoes coming out from underneath that woman's dress. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then you look again and you see the outline of a large, kind of quite a broad back. Um, so that was another side of Victoria that we never really see in the statues of her around town. Yes, she looks so dour and she liked art with afternoon delights. Um, <laughs> so how hard was it for you to, to, to do that? How closely guarded is, is her history? Because you had a few adventures along the way and arguments, didn't you? Tell us a bit about that, about how closely guarded her, the story we've heard is and, and compared to the one you wanted to tell. Well, I think it's really interesting because people assume that, oh, well, I guess you're just going over the same old documents and you're telling the same story and why would you do Victoria? Biographies have been written before. But it's very much a living history. The way Victoria is told today is hotly contested and very much protected and, as I discovered, still subject to censorship um, or at least certainly strong attempts at censorship in my case. Um, I, it took me a couple of, about three years to get into the Royal Archives and I, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in. I naively assumed that I said I have a PhD in history, um, I have this contract with um, reputable publishers and I will treat the material in a careful and scholarly fashion. I just somehow assumed that they would let me, let, let me in. They didn't. They said, you haven't done Royal History before and this is your first biography. This is, that is not, by the way, that is not criteria applied to other people. They're not transparent about who gets in and why and when. Um, it wasn't until Quentin Bryce found out by accident that I was having this battle and her, her official secretary you know, helped lobby to get me in that I was able to get in. And I was thrilled. I was both thrilled 
and discombobulated, that the only thing that had changed about my project was the nature of my um, advocate. Was it a bit because you're Australian? The... I said it, you don't Who can still say? Don't I mean, yeah. other Australian... I've met someone from the Women's Weekly who got in without blinking. <laughs> yeah. I... Um, you know, and I actually had a law professor say to me recently who's had similar problems. She said it's almost like the more expertise you have, the less likely they are sometimes to let you in. Um, but I got in and it was so thrilling, the actual, the crackling of the parchments. I'd read all of her journals before I went in, but under your hands and um, to see her, the emphasis, she was so emphatic and passionate and it was italics and, and, and you know, double underlining. Um, they, they're very, very protective. They follow you everywhere when you get in there. It's in, um, it's in the round tower at Windsor Castle that iconic tower that you see in all the shots of it, and you have to climb up 100 stairs to get to it. And um, they follow you to the bathroom um, to make sure that you don't nick, away, you nick off with any precious documents, which can be quite awkward because they also use the um, loudspeaker if they haven't got a spare archivist in the room. And then you'll just hear through the round tower, there'll be this intercom going, um, Ms Baird, um, Dr Baird needs to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Um, again. <laughs> There's <laughs> <some> work. <laughs> are we so talking into the toilet, into the stall? Stand right outside it. It's awkward, I know. So I just stopped drinking tea in the mornings. <laughs> I was just completely dehydrated for my whole time there. I just couldn't bear that intercom going off again. But, um, but, and then afterwards, I don't, uh, I don't know if you want me to talk about it now, there, I, I did get asked to remove several sections from my book. Because one thing you do is you sign a contract saying that before you publish, you will run past the relevant sections of the book, of your manuscript, that you've relied on their material. And I did that. I sent them my whole manuscript. And what they asked me to pull out was not the part that came from the archives, but the part that came from elsewhere, from her doctor's archives in Scotland. And so I, had to, I spent months tied up with lawyers actually about that, but I, I went ahead and published it. Um, in the interest of history and the fact that I had no contractual obligation to do so. But I really, I, I did, it was a, a tussle because I wanted to be respectful and, you know, appreciative of the fact that um, I was allowed in. But there's a reason that the Times of London is currently running a very big campaign to say the Royal Archives has got to be more open, um, especially to historians, to people who are wanting to get the historical, you know, the record accurate and fair and correct. And so you're still allowed into the UK? <laughs> I haven't been since. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Probably not into Maybe that not tower the with the toilet guards. Um, we might talk about a bit about the content of that later, but let's talk a bit about her personality. Of course, we're all very much a product of, of our time, but what was she like, Queen Victoria? Was she... This is called bossy Queen Victoria. Was she bossy? We were looking up. It was funny. Sarah and I, just before we went on, um, came on stage, we're going, what, wait, how do you define bossy? Because we all understand it as, a, as an ex excessive and unpleasant use of authority. Um, and it does actually, the definition roams from enjoys giving people orders, which Victoria very much did, um, to being tyrannical and despotic. So let's just say Victoria embraced and relished her power in a way that has been underplayed by historians for a century, I believe. She wanted to be queen when she was 17, when she was 18 years old. Um, and part that was teen rebellion because she didn't get on with her mother and her mother's advisor, who she instantly banished from her kingdom. It was this classic, you know, most teenagers are, you know, given an allowance and she had a kingdom or a queendom. Um, 
she, throughout her life, was very protective of her power. She relinquished quite a lot to Albert, and that was a lot of the, that was about their personal relationship and his insistence that she do so. Her concern that he was emasculated, um, and but but certainly after his his death, um, she had reigned for forty years on her own, and she she wrote letters to generals directly in the field, for which she was reprimanded. She appointed bishops. She tried to sack prime ministers. She effectively did once. Uh, this was a woman who was trying to maintain her authority as well as her relevance at a time when the crown was becoming more and more symbolic. I think that she would not have been particularly amused by the idea of that by the term bossy but you know in 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 a sense of a woman who knew her mind and told people very firmly she absolutely did the boss perhaps much well, but better. she was so yeah. how can you not exactly. be You're exercising your authority and protecting <laughs> She's doing it. a job yeah it, yeah. It, yeah i don't believe in using that for women in power no one says George the Third was bossy, or George the Fourth, or and they were all, you know, were autocratic, as comes with the territory. Mm. She, she, as you said, she embraced it and she didn't apologise for it. There's a, another session today about nasty women and, and you know having the empower to be to be nasty and not always be nice and compliant and loved. Yep. How was she with that? Because she did like the love of her subjects, though, didn't she? She liked the love of her subjects, but she had no fear of powerful men. I mean, William Gladstone, who she had a very fractured relationship with, said, being in a room alone with the Queen is enough to kill any man, (laughs) Um, which I think would would qualify her as being a nasty woman. You know, Bismarck walked out of a room with her mopping his brow, according to his courtiers, and saying, my God, what a woman one could do business with her. So in the sense which I think we know nasty woman to have been used with someone who kind of knows her mind and tells you it, absolutely, she would have been nasty. I'd like to see her take on Donald Trump, actually. That would be fascinating. <laughs> Don't you wish I've there was time travel it. sometimes? I've thought about Doctor it a lot. Doctor Who TARDIS, go back and get her. Right. Oof, that would be good. <laughs> um, she did, though, as you said, you mentioned Albert, she did let one man rule over her. She was so in love with him. Um, but when you read his book, you know, I don't like him very much, really. He, he's, he's very controlling um, with her and, and lecturing and hectoring and, and also quite... He almost treats her like a child sometimes, like she was something... He had to tame her willful, stubborn, emotional personality. He calls her child in he some of their letters. He calls her child, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. is it useful to see... To she called him master. Like... She called him master in some of those, that correspondence as well. Um, look, I think there's a couple of things going on with her relationship with Albert. I think, Abila, I think he was a, a, an extraordinary man, actually. He was a very, very progressive. He was a polymath. He was interested in sanitation. He was interested in the causes of the, of the social unrest then. He's like, well, let us do something to create jobs. Let us do something to create better, you know, working and living conditions. Um, he, he was worried about slavery. He gave excellent speeches on it. He had one of these brains where he, was, he would design better cribs for the nursery and a billiard table that was a bit higher so the women wouldn't have to lean over and expose their bosoms. And um, he, you know, um, had a strong hand in preventing the, um, you know, the British getting involved in the American Civil War. He wrote symphonies. You know, he was actually extraordinary. He was very serious. He was very tender with his wife and he was the one who took the, the dominant role with the children. He managed the nursery. 
Um, he oversaw all, all of their education. And Victoria, at a time when the maternal instinct was not elevated above the paternal as it is now, um, said, yes, he's the better nurse. Um, he's the one that romps around with them. He takes all of that. And he was very solicitous with her. He's the one that got rid of the... Um, the practice that when you give a queen gives birth that all the men of state come into the room or they're in a room adjacent and just wait till the labour's finished to make sure that she actually gave birth to that child and they hadn't swapped another one in. Um, horrific. Can you imagine labouring with the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and the Cabinet <laughs> next door? All talking about how they were peeking in. I mean, it was horrible. She got rid of that. He got rid of that. And he's the one that also told her um, about anaesthetics. So she finally had chloroform by the yeah. time of Leopold, by her second last child, and she declared it delightful. And many, many women followed, <laughs> followed in her tracks. The first woman to have had it was so thrilled, they nicknamed that baby Anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, so Albert, you know, I, I think he was really quite an extraordinary man, but I, I really wanted to get into the psychological, into the relationship between them, to understand that by the time of his death she felt diminished, she felt small. He came from a country where women couldn't lead. He preferred the, he thought men, he preferred the company of men, of male intellectuals. Um, he uh, actually didn't have much preference for the company of women. He was not at all swayed by beautiful women. He was devoted to her and faithful to her, as his, both of his parents had been spectacularly unfaithful. But over time, her concern about his emasculation, about his having work to do because he burned to work, combined with her multiple pregnancies, her years and years of kind of like pregnant breastfeeding, um, she lost her sense of herself. And he kept telling her, you must try to improve yourself, you must improve your character. And he called her tantrums combustibles. Um, one of the things I loved about, um, that I found in the archives, was which, which Beatrice, Victoria's youngest daughter, had tried to have destroyed in the Second World War, and for some reason, some, some librarian did not. They took a photograph, photographs of them, a mem memoranda between Albert and Victoria. They, they used to write and, and pass it through the secretary when they were having fights. <laughs> and Albert, in his Germanic way, was very like, you know, wrote her this stern list of Victoria. Number one, you must apply more rationality to your thinking. You would benefit from this. Number two, stop following me from room to room when we argue. <laughs> I cannot stand it. And she would weep and be remorseful and be so... And I think it was a... a, a she, she loved him d dearly and truly, but she, was, she, she did lose a sense of herself during it, and I think that's why she grieved so hard and so long. Mm. And, and, and so what extent do you think that her ambitions of rule were eroded under um, that sort of kind of, you know, relationship and how she... You say one point in the book, yes, you said she made herself small so he could feel big. Mm. How did that limit her um, combined with the restraints of motherhood and, and what did that mean for her after he died? There's, a, there's an index now in the ADSM, is that it? That I always get it wrong. The, the psychological journal, you know, the... Oh, the... Um, it's not BDSM. D, no, it's the DS... Sorry about that. I missed In a DSM, there's, a, there's an appendix now for protracted grief. Now, it's very quite controversial because people think, well, I pathologise a normal and understandable human emotion. But there has been quite a bit of psychological work, research, that's been done into what makes you particularly susceptible to really grieving for a very long time. 
And, you know, it was being bullied in her childhood, which she was, losing a parent at a very young age. Her father died when she was nine months old. It is when you have a companion who's everything to you. Mother, father, best friend, confidant, husband. He was everything. She really um, hated it when he, when he left for several hours during the day to go off and do something else. They worked side by side. She was immensely dependent on him. So um, I think that impacted her and it took her a while to get her confidence back. But I did not see any evidence ever that she lost um, faith in her own authority and her own significance. She, I, I, and a lot of people misunderstand that period after her death and misunderstood very much at the time because she wouldn't appear in public. She developed some kind of phobia about being looked at, about having eyes, you know, drilling into her. And she relinquished some of her duties. And I think reading it, you feel like maybe you could have gone and opened Parliament just a few more times. She would have storms and rages about, you don't know what this would do to me. She got doctors to say, look, she's really not up to it. She will vomit violently were she to take on such a charge. So the cabinet ministers would all be quite concerned about it. So there are times when she could have done more work, but I think it did take her a while to find, to find her footing but never did she stop writing, bombarding them and instructing them what to do, trying to, trying to influence who was Prime Minister um, and, who, in fact, who the Cabinet was. I mean, I think we'd be quite shocked to look at it now because no-one would expect the Queen today to have that kind of influence. Yeah. So she was working behind the scenes, just not going out in public very much. So. Yeah, and she fostered that myth. I mean, she wrote these Leaves yeah. in the Highlands, which was her journals of her life in the Highlands, which she loved. She wanted a simple life. She loved Balmoral, which was set in a very, very wild setting. I think we think of it as quite tame now. We see shots of the royals there in their kilts with their dogs. But if you go there, it's in the middle of this fantastic highlands. And they would head off incognito um, in these travelling packs up and down the hills and try not to be recognised. Um, she would wander in and out of the cottages surrounding Balmoral and just sit down and talk to people for hours. She loved simplicity. She hated pretension. A lot of London society drove her mad. Um, so what was your... So now she liked to romp in the Highlands. She liked to dance as so well. So she herself yeah. fostered that image. That myth, yeah. She, she took photos of herself gazing up at busts of Albert and her poor children always clad in black, similarly looking up at busts of Albert for years. <laughs> and, and, you know, and also these, the, this almost timid domestic life of her in the Highlands, we can, you, you would be forgiven for completely missing the fact of how ferocious she was. With so why did she do that? Why did she foster that image of her as, as the grieving widow while she still was wielding enormous power and, and influence? Was yeah. it because she was quite canny? Was yes, because she had, an, she had a tremendous instinct for what her subjects wanted and needed. They would have wanted more public display, I believe. But she understood what it meant for her to be the domestic queen. She knew exactly that that was part of why she was so loved. And she really saw the transition from seeing the monarchy as aristocrats to ordinary people. And she was flooded when, when Albert died, the sympathy from people all around the land for her and as, as a widow, um, the enormous amount of correspondence. And she hired widows... She promoted widows. She called it the sad sisterhood. We must cling together. She made then... For widows then would have lost a lot of social status, would have had problems, obviously, with income, would not have appeared in public, would rarely have worked. And she took the status of the widow and really made it something... Not exactly triumphant, but something important 
and something large and something to be reckoned with. I think that was really interesting. Mm. Well, let's just talk a bit more about her, the power she had and her relationship with the Prime Ministers, um, from Lord Melbourne, who she had a total crush on when she was young. Yes, although it's overplayed in the series, by the way, but yes. she did have a massive oh, but, Well, it was sort of like a father, almost a father daughter crush who seemed very close to him. In, he, and he was and he witty and he her. consoled yeah. her and you know even in the time like he didn't really want her to get married. He'd had quite a sad background himself with his wife and his son and um, it's quite sweet the correspondence. He used to always try to build her up and instruct her and you are clever and you are across all of this and he made it entertaining and he jollied her along and like one exchange is quite gorgeous before he was trying to calm her fears about getting married and um, it will be okay, and don't worry, he'll side with you and not your mother. Um, all those kinds of things. And, and she said to him, but, but I've, she had no one else to talk to, right, about will I... She was trying to ask him, will I be pretty as a bride? She was kind of saying, well, I seem to have lost some weight, and I don't know, I look very pale. And he said to her, Victoria, you have a firm and anxious nostril. <laughs> and, and there are not many other women who have that, you know, facial features. I was like, dude, is that the best you could do? Your nostril is beyond compare. But anyway, um, he, he, he really was, a ve- you know, this kind of avuncular figure. But they don't she had a the great crush on, the, on him. They don't mention the nostrils on the TV show. <laughs> yeah. um, which is going at the moment. I think it's on the, on the BBC. I, I, I should mention, though, but she did also... She was so attached to him that she was very foolish early on in her yeah, reign and wouldn't was. let this Robert Peel be Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. She refused to change some of the ladies in her household so that Lord Melbourne would be. It was that they had a couple of spectacularly foolish moments early on, showing her immaturity and his as well, probably. Yeah. So what sort of power did she have and, and over the years and how did she wield it? She wielded it as firmly as she could always at all times. She never resiled. Um, she, the, the act, look, she was heavily involved in the selections of prime ministers, in the selections of cabinet ministers and of bishops, particularly the waging of wars. She was very burnt, as many people were and should have been, by the um, operation of the Crimean War because it was was just an absolute shambles. They didn't even have have enough bandages. As we know from Florence Nightingale's involvement, the lack of organisation that went into... um, the medical and military efforts there were stunning. She met the men coming back and she always wrote about them in great detail. The, the um, empty, uh, you know, sleeves, the, the disfigured faces, the missing legs. And from, from then on, she was very fierce about the proper resourcing of wars. Also, to be honest about horses, she had a thing that horses should be treated properly in wars as well. She was very fond of animals. So, so... Um, she intervened, especially in a lot of foreign conflicts. She saw that she could have a kind of soft diplomacy through her relationships with many of the monarchs in Europe and many of her friends. And I think quite effectively, and certainly the editors of her letters argue that she um, and Albert kept them out of conflicts when it came to some of the turmoil of the 1850s and 1860s um, with what was happening in Europe, with you know the unification of Italy and of Germany as well. Um, although, you know, Albert and Victoria had wanted a unified Germany with Prussia at the lead. Um, she, and later on in her time, she acted against 
William Gladstone. I don't think it shows the best side of her, her personal relationship with Gladstone, although many described him as charmless, if visionary. Um, and, she, and, she ador- and she adored Disraeli. And, and over that time, we can see her um, again strongly involved. What she really wanted to do was to, to, was to forcibly create a centrist kind of government that could work together, um, especially when it comes through to to suffrage. And there were many bills she did not approve of, um, but when she worked out that was the mind of the House of Commons, she would support it and she would work out ways behind the scenes to try to get the men together to get it through. But no, she did not always get get her way, and it's a long string of of her simply trying to assert her authority. But if she'd got her way, we would not have seen William Gladstone as Prime Minister ever. Um, and Disraeli liked working with women with power more, and that's why, one of the reasons why they got on. Disraeli is fascinating. Um, someone uh, sitting next to the two men at a dinner party, if you, you say, said, if you sat next to William Gladstone at a dinner party, you would think, come away thinking he was the cleverest man in the world. And if you sat next to William Disraeli, you would come away thinking you were the cleverest woman in the world. <laughs> um, you know, Victoria said that Disraeli spoke to her as though he was at a public meeting. And someone else said if he was a rope and you dipped him into a vat of water and then squeezed every last drop out, you would not get a single drop of fun. Um, Victoria, Victoria liked to be charmed. She had incredible rapport with Disraeli. She was becoming more conservative as she was getting older. She was a Whig in her younger years and she, she was very much a Tory by that stage. But to some extent, it's a great shame um, because some of... because. Gladstone is one of those politicians we're amazed to look back on now who didn't care for... He was able to rouse the masses but didn't care for polling, who took on deeply unpopular causes such as Irish home rule when he knew it would destroy his career. And there's something, even though that seems kind of masochistic and career suicide, there's something very appealing about that principle that she admired in other people like Robert Peel. So we'll go to questions uh, pretty soon. So if you've got one, you can start having a think about any questions you have for Julia. Um, She didn't believe in women's right to vote and yet she did inspire uh, those who did. And she, just by her incredible love of work, she very much inspired people like Florence Nightingale. Can you talk a little bit about the letter that uh, Florence Nightingale wrote, uh, Cassandra, that you quote from extensively in the book and, and how the very much of this era, what was going on towards the end of the reign of Queen Victoria. How, oh, it wasn't right towards the end. No, that yeah. was, she wrote that around the time of the Great Exhibition. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look it up in a second, read some of it actually, because I was so affected by that, um, by, this, by this essay that, that Florence Nightingale wrote. And you can see the urgency and the urge of the, of, the, of the women around her and the female intellectuals who were dying to use their brains and to be of use and were being taken to calling card you know, after calling card situation to all these social situations. And Florence Nightingale said that every night when I go to my bed, it's like going to my grave. I have to be used. Like, this, this, this woman's brain was enormous, and she set up the hospital system today as we under, understand it. She was essentially a statistician. Now, Cassandra was the name... ..was, was based on a story about the Greek gods. Um, Cassandra was sexually harassed or proposed to by Apollo. She rebuffed his advances. And so he said, I will curse you. And your curse will be that you will tell the truth, but no-one will believe you. 
And this was her story about the lot of women. And I was so struck by it. And you can see Victoria's immense privilege. Other female intellectuals were so jealous that she was able to call in scientists and call in reformers and musicians and actually be able to kind of use her brain. Have you got it here now? Yep. Um, she wrote, why have women passion, intellect, moral activity and a place in society where no one of the three can be exercised? Now, why is it more ridiculous for a man than for a woman to do worsted work and drive out every day in the carriage? Now, I think that this can be applied exactly today to domestic work. I think we still see it as more ridiculous or strange if a man does it than a woman. Why should we laugh if we were to see a panel of men sitting around a drawing room table in the morning and think it all right if they were women? Is man's time more valuable than women's? Women themselves have accepted this, have written books to support it and have trained themselves so as to consider whatever they do as not of such value to the world or to others. Um, I really recommend reading that essay. It's one of the most brilliant feminist essays I've actually read and remarkably prescient. You can see, again, Victoria's privilege, but also how remarkable it was that she was so firmly convinced of her ability and right to be there. Um, she did think that female suffragists deserved a spanking. <laughs> she did not think that women should reach for that kind of power, but of course never gave up an inch of her own, never abdicated to her son, um, and has been one of those women who's exercised power while insisting that other women don't need it. But, but female suffragists did talk about her inspiring their generation. H.G. Wells said his mother, for all of the slights you know, like inflicted on her. All the ways in which she was diminished, he said, there was the Queen telling the Prime Minister what to do and ordering Anne Albert as a subject, and he said his mother started to dress more and more and resemble her more, you know, in her black-clad um, widow's clothes over, over time. And Josephine Butler, that incredible um, female feminist campaigner and reformer in that century, also said a Queen does something to men and that is, it diminishes some of, the, it, some of the rough edges of their contempt for women. Now, I wonder often about whether that's, that's one of the reasons that, that England has now had two, two prime ministers. We can speculate on that. Um, but I do know that when Victoria died, Henry James said, it feels like it's England without a roof. Um, they were so used to her presence. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and they've had two female prime ministers. Yeah. Because yeah. used to also seeing women... Will power. Right. Yeah. So we talked a little bit, before I go to questions, you kind of gave this hint about what was uh, asked to be taken out of the book. <clears throat> Do you want to know what it was? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. What was it, Julia? <laughs> Actually, do you know one thing I just want to mention before I talk about that, which, is, which I rarely talk about, which is they did query when I said that she had postnatal depression. And I was really interested in that because she says quite clearly... I was low for a year after giving birth. I was melancholic. They had to go away. She was depressed. She, um, this was after the birth of her son. And I, it just made me wonder whether that's still stigmatised, whether that's just something that still seems to be a slur, whether even in 2017 we can't accept that this is, this is something that happens following the birth of children. The, bit, the parts that they asked me to cut out were, were parts that I had um, regarding her relationship with John Brown which I found in her doctor's, um, this incredible resource. Her doctor's, the, 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 the doctor's descendants have kept them immaculate in this manner in the lowlands of Scotland. And they've got his tiny little journals, 
and I, I found one, one bit which had not been published before, which was um, the doctor walking in on them, playing this game, and he writes it in code in a little corner of the page, which if you see the rest of it's like, you know, went to get some Dover's powder for the Queen, not feel, feeling poorly, you know, and then down this corner, walked in on the Queen and Joan Brown, and she lifts up her skirt and says, is it here? And he says, no, it's here, lifting up his kilt. Now, the Scots have been thrilled about the thought that a, you know, a Scotsman has lifted up his kilt um, in front of the Queen. Um, the headlines from the Scotsman were, you know, Scotsman exposes his privates to the Queen, which isn't the way I saw it. But I see it as, as a sign of an intimacy that was recorded by a man who was closer to the Queen than any other. She died in his arms. And the way that he tracked their relationship and mentioned John Brown in his diaries I thought was very significant. And I think the most significant thing of all, <coughs> which they didn't want published, which was how she wanted to be buried. <coughs> she left instructions written in her hand to be kept in the pocket of her dresser at all times. And it was how she wanted to be buried and they were to be passed upon to James Reid, her doctor, at the time of her death. And she wanted to have mementos around her, rings her family had given her, bracelets, a plaster cast of Albert's hand, a shawl her daughter had made her. And in this hand, we haven't talked very much about John Brown, but I'm happy to later because I'm just getting to his significance now. Hopefully you know that she had this servant, the fact that it was this great scandal and her family called the Queen Stallion. And, um, <clears throat> in this hand, she had a photo of Albert and a lock of his hair. In this hand, she had a photo of John Brown and a lock of his hair. She then asked the doctor to wrap that hand in gauze and it was covered with flowers so that the royal family would never see it and never know about it. It's only contained in these instructions. Also on this hand was John Brown's mother's wedding ring. Um, and that, the Royal Archives do not, wish to be, do not wish to be published, but I've seen it with my own eyes. They were her instructions for her burial. Da, 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 da. <laughs> All right, while people are getting towards the microphone, there's one there and one there to ask Julia a question. Please make it a question. Um, and she will be signing books afterwards as well in the Western Foyer. Just talk a bit, while people are going to the microphones, why don't yep. you talk a bit about John Brown oh. and why that was significant? Because hasn't, we haven't got much room for later. <laughs> she's, a, she's a widow. She's lost a man. She's been married to for 20 years. He's called a ghillie, which is like a highland servant or assistant. Um, and he was brought down to, to kind of get out into the air, to get out of, out of the reclusion. He used to take her on rides around the highlands. He was brought to Windsor. Soon she began to depend on him like no one else. She publicly called him my very, very, very best friend. Um, he called her woman. The, I mean, the, they, were just, they were completely shocked, the staff and the children. Um, and the children have tried to... Um, tried to get rid of him, they burned all his correspondence, they strongly dissuaded Victoria from writing his memoir she wanted to do after he too died. Um, he, he drank too much, he swore, she indulged it all um, because he was a man again without pretension. When Albert died she said, who will call me Victoria now, you know? And as Tennyson said, she was all alone on that terrible height. But she didn't say, he didn't write that he didn't say that to her after Albert died. He said that to her after John Brown died and she called him for comfort. You are now all alone on that terrible height. So it's a really fascinating relationship and I grew to kind of really have a lot of sympathy for it. 
um, in, the, in the depth of loneliness which she had. And here was this kind of completely devoted man um, who saved her from assassins in her own account and was always at her side. That's so sad when he dies. Have we got any questions? There's a microphone. There's one there and one there. Really? <laughs> None? <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> okay, well, we'll keep going then. Yeah, this one here. Oh, sorry. Oh, do, can you... It's just easier for me to do oh, it. Oh, okay. Yes. yes. All right. I just wondered, have any of those archives about Queen Victoria... Um, were there any destroyed in the big fire at Windsor Castle? Mm. Okay, I'm going to... Because this is recorded and it's going out, I'll just paraphrase what you said. Is there anything in, of the archives that was destroyed in the Great Fire of London? Uh, no, in the so, Great Fire of Windsor Castle. Oh, great. The, sorry, the Windsor Castle. Yeah, the Great Fire of Windsor Castle. Um, <laughs> the history of the royal family is a history of fires. <laughs> and it's not so much the Great Fires, it's the bonfires in courtyards. <laughs> You know, and when Victoria died, all of her correspondence with John Brown destroyed. Statues of him smashed. In fact, all her correspondence as well with a servant, an Indian servant she drew close to, um, Abdul Karim, also destroyed. Um, her journals. We only have her, the real transcript of her journals up until her marriage. After that, her daughter wrote it out in her own hand, editing, cutting parts out, another bonfire. So. Um, absolutely. The greatest ever, you know, look, we still have voluminous um, amounts of material that she wrote herself and, and of her diary. Well, you can tell because we have some of the originals and some of what Beatrice did to them. You can tell what she, what she was doing. She was making her less emotional. Um, we know the editors of her letters took out her criticisms of the French, of the Irish um, and of her children. They, they, she's been sanitised and disinfected for centuries, and that is the great task of the historian, is to get through that and to work, work out what they've been doing. But absolutely, bonfires. And today, there is no index. You have to guess what's there and hope they'll bring you it. I mean, I was even told, look, we can't get you everything on that material, it just it will take too long. So what's there? What is it? One of her one box is completely closed. That's Louise's, her, her beautiful sculptor daughter who married a man who preferred the company of men and ended up being a great companion, but she took on lovers and the extent of which or whether she was actually with Edward Bohm at the moment that he died of a heart attack in his um, studio, we don't know. Um, there's a lot of whether she had a baby. There's, there's, that is actually completely closed. So some brave soul has tried to write the biography of Louise without access to that. So that's why there's a campaign on, um, and that's Australians are trying to get back our correspondence with over the dismissal as well. Um, and I fully support those endeavours when they're not compromising to national security, which I assume they're not anymore. Yeah, you wouldn't think so. Right, I've got a question over here. Yes. Thank you for such an interesting talk. I just wanted to check. So, is there anything that leads you to believe she wasn't buried as she instructed, or? with the, you know, lock of hair and mm. photo in both hands, or do you think that her wishes were followed? Well, yes, I do think they were followed because it was entirely in the hands of James Reid. We know from his letters and, um, to his wife and his diaries that he, he did it, that he had those instructions with him, and he was completely faithful to her. So... Um, and I can see no reason that he would rebel against that. And her, her children were cut out, cut out of it. She didn't want Bertie, for example, to be doing any of it. Um, 
So I think, I think we can be confident that that was how. And she wrote out two versions of those and they were kept in her, her dresser's pocket. And um, the, the people near her were, were very loyal to her. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, over here. Yep. Um, you said that um, she sort of chose to downplay her power and play the widow. Um, so I was just thinking, do you think that's a rule that applies to even women today, that if we want to be really powerful, we have to almost act and downplay it? Yes. I think that definitely happens to women today. You're often, well, but, but if it happens to people who commentate on women in power, we excuse it or magnify it as something peculiar or as something suspect, and especially women reaching for power. I mean, we saw that with Hillary Clinton, um, our original nasty woman. We saw a complete brain explosion over Julia Gillard being Prime Minister that um, I think we're still trying to fathom what on earth that was about. Um, and that was a woman ruling. Um, Ruling, wrong word. But um, you know that that was a, that was a woman in position of power. I, but I also think that she instinctively understood her symbolic power, um, and she was quite discreet about her. Like then you wouldn't have told the world about the fact that you were bossing around Gladstone. And to be honest, some ministers wrote to her around the time she was going. Can you just be prime minister? Because I don't want Gladstone to have it. And they're like, well, I haven't got support of the house. He does. She's like. Okay, can you just try to be prime minister? She kept trying others, and then they would write to her and say, "Look, this is going to be awkward. If this gets out, if people find out about this, this will be scandalous because it was an overreach." So therefore, there were other reasons that she wouldn't have advertised things like that that she would have done. But she knew that her subjects responded to to a domestic queen and to and to a, to a bereaved widow, and she capitalised on that. Even when she was shot at several times, and. She said once, and I actually think it's very interesting the number of times she was shot at, and it only struck me going back, because I was writing it in the year that, you know, Rosie Batty was out there. And how women writers at the time were saying, what, what is it about a female queen that excites people so much that they're trying to shoot her and kill her? Now, the, most of them were mad. Most of them were sent to Australia. They all ended up here. <laughs> I, I, I think there's an interesting book I know. up on them. I know. I know. Well, one of them... Where their descendants could be in this room. <laughs> one of them sold pies in Fremantle and then died when he fell off a bridge. Another, like, was a respectable painter in uh, Victoria. Another was a, you know, made a good life for himself in Tasmania. Um, but, again, but, but some of them, you know, did say, we don't want a woman to be leader. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, she actually had a man come up to her and club her over the head with a cane. Mm. And she turned up to the opera that night with a black eye and getting a standing ovation and refusing. She refused to bow ever. And when she was shot at, she still refused to be in an open carriage. That was not the way that she was going to conduct herself. Although, when years later, I think it was in the 1890s, it could be 80s, um, that cane came up for auction somewhere, the cane that was used to clobber the Queen. (laughs) And Osborne House found out about it and then that was quickly disappeared. Um, and didn't appear again. But she said then after one of those shootings, when (laughs) when the crowd... Absolutely. When the crowds would um, emerge, she said, it's almost worth being shot at because you suddenly realise how popular you are. (laughs) So she knew knew where the public sympathy lay. So it's a complicated answer to that question, but thank you. But it's like now, you know, every, every, the, the child is the ultimate accessory for women in all sorts of power. We just glorify... Right, the birth of kids now, because it makes a woman more 
you know, she can be powerful, but at least she's got the kids and she can't. I think she understood that as well. Yeah, right. Although she probably wouldn't have had as many if she'd had birth control. Would she, she would definitely <laughs> not have had many. She was so worried about not being able to have enough sex mm. with Albert. <laughs> and, and also pregnancy was really hard. She was, I mean, she was just under five foot tall. And dangerous in those times. Um, and dangerous. The fact yeah. that she, you know, had so many pregnancies was she was remarkably robust. Talk about the hashtag she persisted. She really did. <laughs> Over here. Um, fantastic presentation, Julia. Really interesting. I just wanted to know why do you think she didn't appear to be an advocate for other women? <clears throat> I actually think it goes in part to her relationship with Albert. Um, she saw him as the dominant creature and herself as submissive. But I've seen this a lot of times, actually. I've seen very um, strong women advocate that their husbands are, are, are dominant or are to be heads. Um, I don't know why she had that fundamental hypocrisy, which is what it was. She adored Florence Nightingale, and she was jealous of her, actually. I think of the, some of the work that she did and how much the soldiers, soldiers loved her. Um, she was reflective of the mood of the times. Um, it, but if you look at her daughters, she, she bred a generation of suffragettes. They were all going off as nurses and supporting Florence. Louise, this is the controversial sculptor, was one too. Um, but she, it, she, she kind of called it the natural order of things um, and she defied it herself and can kind of make of that what you will. Probably does, does that answer your question? <laughs> I'm just basically saying she was, she was, quite, she was quite hypocritical on that front. Um, and she had a biblical sense of, of women being secondary. But, you know, she often said, oh, women aren't suited for this work. Absolutely. It's terrible. But you will not be prime minister and you are not <laughs> taking that many people to war. You know, I mean, she, she contained multitudes in that sense. And that's the task of a biographer. There's no simple reducing. And she would sometimes change her mind... Over decades, didn't like women doctors, but liked, you know, um, the female midwives, you know, for, for example, liked Florence Nightingale, who by all intents and purposes should have been a doctor then. Um, so she was, she was full of contradictions. She was complex. Yeah. You can't go to a microphone? Oh, sorry, it's hard to squeeze. Oh, OK. Well, I'll, I'll paraphrase just because it's being it's recorded. So, yep. Did she have any favourite daughters who she thought would come up in the ranks and be as powerful as she was um, politically as an undercurrent? The question is, did she have pa powerful daughters that she thought would come up and be powerful? Yeah. Um, favourite? Favourite, well, yes. Oh, a favourite daughter. OK, so her eldest daughter was not her favourite, but was the most like Albert. That's all she ever wanted. She wanted all of her children to resemble Albert in every single way. Physically, she had no truck with her own physical appearance. She's like, but she wanted beautiful people around her. She was completely lacking in vanity. It's another thing I quite liked about her. She was like corsets, I'm the queen, why would you, you know? Um, which I agree with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, but her eldest daughter was quite brilliant. 
um, as I think Albert was. Albert was distraught when she went over to, to Prussia. She married um, Wilhelm II and had a miserable time there. It was, it's a, quite a sad story, actually, because it was quite an autocratic royal family. She was seen as an outsider. She was English. They were very nationalistic. And her first son, um, Wilhelm... Now, Victoria died. One arm was um, James Reid, the doctor, and the other arm was her grandson, Wilhelm, who was so mean to his own mother but adored Victoria... He had a breech birth. He was born with a... I think it's maybe an herbs palsy, something with, with a um, twisted arm that he often concealed in portraits like Stalin, holding swords or, or, or resting on things. And he was so mean. He was so mean to his mother. Um, and it's funny that, he, that Victoria died in his arms because um, he was at war with England, you know, a mere 14 years later. Her favourite... So I always find the, the story of Vicky very, very sad. And he, she, but she and Victoria drew so close, they wrote to each other every day. Um, Victoria peppered her with questions about what hat she was wearing at every time and what the furniture layout in her rooms was. And, you know, and then when she wouldn't get an answer, she'd write for the dresses for answers about what she'd worn. Um, she just seriously was a... Massive micromanager. Her favourite child was Beatrice, her youngest. She was a bonny baby, you know, the apple of the eyes, as many youngest can be, always very cheerful. They all delighted in her and she really wanted Beatrice to stay on and be her companion for the rest of her life. Now, Beatrice happened to meet someone when she was briefly allowed out of Victoria's clutches because no one wanted to... She didn't want Victoria to... Any, Victoria didn't want anyone to mention the words marriage around her. She delayed her coming out. Like she, um, and when, when um, Beatrice came back and said, look, I've met someone, I really want to marry him, they didn't talk for six months. <laughs> And they just passed notes to each other across the table. It was this glacial freeze. But um, eventually she relented and grew extremely fond of, of her son-in-law, who unfortunately died on his way to, to South Africa. So they were widows again. So she's the one that you can see most of the um, photographs is, is her daughter Beatrice. And her daughter Beatrice, too, was given the task of rewriting her diaries, which would have taken her a decade. And, and I found correspondence of her still in the Second World War, trying to get the then king to burn some more of the memoranda, which I'm so glad still, still remain. So, yeah, and, and that's something we haven't spoken about, is, is her, her relationship with her children. She's often castigated for being a bad mother. Um, but again, throughout her entire life, nine children, all the varied things that she said, I think what she can be accused of is being very controlling, um, spending a lot of time with them um, for, you know, for better or ill. Um, but she doted on them and was constantly concerned with them. She could never be accused of neglect. Um, and I do think that we've applied a standard to her that we never would to a king, actually. It's a bad mother stereotype. Of course, she was up. deeply involved, yeah. yeah. We'd... Too involved, maybe. But, yeah. One more here. Hi. Thank you for the talk. Um, in the context of other women that have held power yeah. over history or more contemporarily, what do you think Victoria did different in how she held her power and what would be a key learning in terms of the modern-day woman? I think a lot of the modern-day learnings are about the way we perceive women in power, to be honest. I mean, think of that time. Women couldn't own property. In divorce cases, future earnings would all go back to their husbands. Future earnings. Can you imagine that? Um, you didn't have any rights to any custody of your children. I mean, the entire century, 
is about the liberation of women in increments until we hit the suffragist, suffragist movement. So the fact that we have seen her as a grumpy old widow and not as a, as a woman who firmly grasped the crown when she was 18. Now, one of the things is it's inherited power, right? So we say, oh, of course, she was just handed it. But many, many people could have resiled from it, accepted incursions into their own power, not constantly overstepped it. We might think that's a really bad thing. We don't want the, the monarchs necessarily to be overstepping power. But she occupied her position comfortably and aggressively and authoritatively. I think what we would take is, it's not second nature for women to have authority and to lead. So that even while she said that wasn't necessarily women's natural domain, it came to her as naturally as breathing. Um, even, when she, even when she made mistakes, when she was a kind of a, a, a teenage queen. So I think the important thing is to constantly be questioning what we're told and how we're perceiving women and how we're perceiving bossy women or nasty women. Um, what stereotypes um, and myths we can actually carry with us. So even those who are some of the most well-known women in the world can be walked beyond recognition if we don't stop and look at them closely enough. That was exactly going to be my last question, so thank you for asking. That was a great question. Um, anything more you want to finish? We've got two more minutes, Julia. Any, any final thing you wanted to say before we finish? Um. <laughs> I mean, we didn't talk about her kids because I've, we, we went on with so much, but um, in, in, in terms of the final myths, which ones do you think you feel you have busted or challenged in this book that you'd like us to really take home today? I think she relished power and she exercised power. She was not just a widow that relinquished everything when Albert died. She was not simply his supplicant and his shadow. Um, their whole relationship is, uh, is, uh, was a tussle between him wanting more power and her certainly not wanting to give it up at the beginning. In the beginning, she spoke about his beauty. He was almost like a trophy. She wanted to, she wanted to go back home at night and talk to him about everything but politics. Um, her Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, was like, you must involve him. And she was like, well, I just basically liked looking at him, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, then, then she grew to understand that he had intellectual capabilities and powers of, of his own. Um, she was... She was... The original toy She boy. was passionate and she was complicated and shouldn't be reduced. In 1919, George Bernard Shaw was asked... There was a, one of the newspapers in London had a competition for the ugliest statue um, in the country... And he said, well, poor Victoria, she's got so many that would actually qualify. And she was a woman who was silvery of voice and graceful in movement, and yet she's been reduced to these kind of lumpy statues, and that's how generations to come will see her. So yeah. um, I would just advise looking beyond the statue. So when you're at the Queen Victoria building next, look up yeah. and go, thank you, Victoria. You, know, you were so much more than... Yes, Think about that, the, the, the two shoes coming out of that dress on a summer afternoon. <laughs> We're going to leave you with that image. <laughs> Gosh.